So tonight we're going to jump into Revelation and look at the first uh, eight verses here. Uh, but before we look at those, I just want to do a kind of, I know uh, last week we were gone because of uh, the holidays. The week before that we, we kind of uh, started talking about the life of John. And so I, I kind of wanted to bring everybody up to kind of this understanding of what's happening in the book of Revelation, the context, because the historical context is important when we understand what's going on in the book of Revelation. But before we get into that, uh, there, here's some things that we, we kind of need to uh, keep in mind as we dive in. Now, we had a lot longer conversation about these uh, about two weeks ago, but these are just some reminders, uh, and if you're, so you know what's uh, jumping in, uh, kind of what's happening. Is uh, so there's many opinions about the book of Revelation, and you will you can Google that. You can go to YouTube and just type in sermons on Revelation, and you will have thousands of sermons on Revelation. And and you will listen to those sermons, and you will think, are they reading the same text? Because one person will say one thing, and the other person will say something totally almost contradicts what the other person say. And there's tons of opinions and tons of meaning. And when we go through the book of Revelation, what we're going to do through this time is is not is to ask the question, you know, what does the Bible actually, what words does the Bible actually use, and and how can and what's the meaning behind that? Uh, there will be things that we will not fully un, all understand every single detail. If you think that I have this magic uh, understanding of the book of Revelation, that is not true. This will be my, I guess, my third time, my second time teaching through it, my third time going through it and studying the book of Revelation. And, and my, some of my opinions, uh, last time I taught it was back in like 2018. And there was times when I had to tell people, I don't understand. I don't know how this all plays out. And then we went through the COVID years. And now I'm like, oh, that's what that's talking about in Revelation. Because we understand how. Under, the, one of the questions was, how in the world... Does the world get so unified? And again, we lived in America and we had a president who was pretty much like, we're doing our own thing. Uh, that was his theme song. I did it my way mentality. And and the whole world was going the other other direction. And now all of a sudden after COVID, it's like, well, yeah, the United States will follow right along with the rest of the world because that's what we did with COVID and type deal. And so you have that. We're not maybe not going to fully understand 1920s and 30s commentaries, guys who study Revelation, they would say, they would write this. This is what this means. This is what the text means. But how that plays out practically, I, I have no idea. And sometimes as we wrestle through these things, we may not understand every single detail, but we have to understand, number one, this is God's Word, and, and we might not fully understand it, but we can trust it. Uh, because of that being God's word. The other thing is, is this: when you go through the Book of Revelation, it will challenge your thinking of end times prophecy. So, if you think you have this understanding of I got it all figured out, I know the exact, maybe not the exact moment or the exact day, but I know the exact time. When Jesus is going to return, I, I have it all figured out. You go through the book of Revelation, it will challenge you. 
I was one of those people that I thought I had it all figured out. Study the book of Revelation, and I was like, whoa, I don't have it all figured out. And it really, it totally changed my understanding of end time prophecy, of when you look at the book of Revelation. Uh, the other thing is this, is that we need to hang on to the Bible firmly in our theology loosely. I, there is, that was a saying that uh, oh, one of my college professors uh, said all the time, especially when it comes to end time prophecy, because there's, there's three main views to end time prophecies, uh, and it deals with, does the question is, will the church go through the, what's called the Great Tribulation this last seven years before Jesus returns? And there's three main views. You got the pre-trib, meaning pre-tribulation, that the church will be raptured pre-tribulation before those times. You got the mid-trib, which is the mid-tribulation, that three and a half years into that, then the church is raptured. Then you have the post-trib, that the church is raptured uh, when at, at the end of those seven years. And then I had a professor who said, then I had then there's the the fourth one, the pan out theory. And everybody's like, why in the world is the pan out theory? Well, <coughs> these events will pan out and at the end we'll know who was right. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things is, you know, so many times we have to let the Word of God influence our theology, not our theology influence the Word of God. And that's the key. We have to let God's Word be our teacher. And if our theology is wrong, then we need to change it. But we do not change the Word of God. And that's going to be the struggle that we go through this. Because the popular view in America is, in those three that I said, what's the popular view in America? Pre-trip. Left behind series. The church is out of here. And then you have seven years of chaos. And then Jesus returns. Do you realize that's not the popular view globally? That's the popular view in America. And so, when we wrestle with Revelation, we wrestle with the question of pain and suffering, and we'll deal with that. And we have to realize in our culture today, if you if there is pain and suffering, what typically is the understanding? If we are struggling with pain or we have suffering, something must be wrong. So I want to go to the doctor, I want to get some pain medication. I'm going on this way uh, after. A hard day working. Uh, my back is hurting, so what I do? I turn to the medicine cabinet, pop some Tylenol, in, and and within a few hours, I, I'm pain free. Where there's good pain and bad pain, when you're working out and you're pumping iron, like not not like I do, but you're pumping iron and you want to get buff, you're going to experience pain because you actually are ripping your muscles to get stronger. 
Yeah, there is a point where you rip your muscles too much and then you need surgery, but uh, there is, and again, it's that mentality. Uh, this, that's why revelation will be that struggle for us, especially as Americans, is this understanding there's tons of pain, there's tons of suffering, but we have to understand that we have to let God's Word be our teacher. Here's two words. You may have never heard these. That's okay. Uh, I'll introduce them. There's, it's called uh, eisegesis and exegesis. That's how you pronounce those. Eisegesis, eis means into, so you you make Scripture say what, what the person wants it to say. And you're thinking, that's crazy, no one would do that. John 3.16, for God so loved, what? The world. Do you realize there's some believers that change the word world and say, for God so loved the elect? That he gave his only begotten son. Because that's their theology. Their theology is saying that God only died for Christians. He doesn't die for non-believers. And so they actually change the word in scripture. Exegesis. Let's look at the scriptures. Let's look and ask the question. What does the, the scriptures mean from the first century point of view? And then we ask the question, how does this apply to my life? And it's a totally different process. And so those are, those are the theological terms. You'll probably never hear them ever again. Um, and that's okay. But you know, sometimes my job as a pastor is to tell you these things. Uh, that I guess sometimes as a pastor, I, I had to go to college to learn all this stuff. And I'm thinking, why? Why did I have to spend all that money to go to college to learn all this stuff? So that's sometimes I give you a little bit of some college education here. So, But it's the understanding of do you read into Scripture or do you let the Scripture influence uh, your, your thoughts? So, so as we uh, look at the book of Revelation, who was, who's, the human, who's the human author of Revelation? John. John. And so we went through the life of John, and just to kind of recap very highlight, so he's from the city of Capernaum. Uh, he was a fisherman. Uh, if you want more details, uh, you can, um, I can give you more information on that. But the city of Capernaum is up there. I'm a map purpose person, as you know. And so, the what? He's the only one that lives in the old age. So Capernaum, Sea of Galilee, that's why he was a fisherman. Because he, the Capernaum is right there on the Sea of Galilee. He is a wealthy fisherman. He, he has this fishing business. And so he is from the Sea of Galilee. Jesus calls him to be one of his followers. He becomes one of the 12 apostles that God sends out. He is there as part of Jesus' inner circle and does some things with Jesus. He's there at Jesus' crucifixion. He is there. He's one of the ones that runs to the temple. Not temple. Runs to the um, the tomb on the first, what we call the first Easter, Resurrection Sunday, and sees with Peter the empty tomb. Peter goes into the tomb. John just pokes his head in, and he says he believes. He's also one of the ones that gets thrown in jail for the book of Acts. Uh, him and Peter are going into the temple. He heals the, the lame man, and they get to get the night in, spend the night in jail. Is also his brother who becomes the first martyr. You can see that in Acts chapter 12 where uh, 
he, his brother, this is kind of the story of the persecution of the church. And it actually causes the, the believers in the, in the book of Acts to not just stay in Jerusalem, but forces them to spread out, like Jesus told them. Eventually, uh, he goes to Ephesus. What other apostle goes to Ephesus? Paul. In fact, we have a letter that he wrote uh, called the, the Ephesians. Uh, he spends time in Ephesus and, and, and helps the Ephesus. And pro- Paul probably plants the city of the church in Ephesus, where John will go later to Ephesus and takes Mary, the mother of Jesus, with him. Why would he take Mary, the mother of Jesus? Jesus told him on the cross. The seven sayings, if you are from more of a liturgical background, you'll hear that. The seven last sayings of Christ. And one of them is, is to John, you know, this is your mother. This is your son. Jesus is making sure Mary, his mother, is being cared for by the Apostle John. And so John does that. He cares for Mary, moves to Ephesus, which is, um, is there, the circle of there. And he, and that's where tradition tells us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, dies there in Ephesus. John lives there in Ephesus for many years until the 14th year after Nero. He is then exiled to the island of Patmos. Domitian, if you know your your uh, Roman Empire history, he was a horrible emperor. We think Nero persecuted the church like crazy. That was the first wave of persecution in the sense of the Roman Empire. Nero killed, uh, beheaded, he didn't, he had them, he didn't do it himself, he had them do uh, Paul was beheaded because he was a Roman citizen. Peter was crucified. Does anybody know how he was crucified? Upside down. Upside down which is incredible when you think about that. The amount of pain being crucified straight is painful. Then you do it upside down and the blood rushes to your head. He asked to do that, yes. Uh, because the tradition tells us that as Peter is going, he knows he's going to be crucified. As Peter is going, he asked the, cruci- the, the crucifier people um, I am not worthy to die the same way as my Lord and Savior. Can you turn me upside down? And so, so we think of Nero as that. I mean, he, Nero did a lot of crazy things. Nero was probably mentally insane because he marries his, his horse. Uh, he sets his own city on fire but blames the Christians because he realized that wasn't the best idea. But he had to have a scapegoat uh, to do it. And so he blames the Christians, and so that causes uh, persecution like crazy. Domitian, so after Nero, things kind of quiet down. When Domitian takes over, there's a second wave of persecution. And this is where you think of like when the Christians are being put into um, the, you know, what's that big Colosseum? Thank you, Colosseum, and you have the wild animals, and you have the the, the fights. Uh, that's the, during this time, and 
John, they can't kill him. They try to. They've even tried to deep fry him. And boil him in hot oiling water. Or hot oil. Boil, boil him in hot oil. And he survived. They try to poison him. And he survived. And so the only thing that is left for him to do is to be exiled to Patmos. And why Patmos? Because the little island, and they said, you might, might as well get out there in this little island with all the other prisoners and leave us alone. He can't do anything out there. The interesting thing is, if you go to Patmos today, this is what you'll see. There's actually a monastery that has been started way back uh, in the 2nd century, 1st century, 2nd century, after uh, the mission releases the uh, prisoners. Uh, there's a monastery that starts there. And if you pay the right fee, you can go into a cave that looks like this. And that is the cave that the monastery will say that John received the, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ from. Uh, so, so it's interesting how how things change. But he is on the island of Patmos in exile, and then he is released from exile. He lives in exile on that island for about 14 years. He is released because what happened is after Domitian dies, the Roman Senate realized Domitian was so cruel and, and had some unusual punishment for the people that they looked at everything that he did and realized that he put in prison and exiled people that don't, didn't deserve to be in prison and exile. So they released those people and said, sorry, go back home, uh, our bad type deal. Uh, and that's what he did. John goes back to Ephesus until his death around 98 uh, A.D. But you have to realize, and this is why we did all this, is because the when we start looking at the book of Revelation, we have to realize that the historical backdrop that these churches are dealing with is this intense persecution. Intense persecution that they're dealing with. Which is interesting because when you look at the book of Revelation, you think, how can this be a good message for believers that are persecuted? When we get into that tonight a little bit, just this introduction part of how there's this hope and who Jesus is. In fact, let me read uh, Revelation chapter 1. We'll jump in here now, the, the first eight verses, and start. Uh, going through the introduction. But let me uh, read the revelation uh, of Jesus Christ, which God gave to, to gave him to show his servants what must take place. He made it known by sending his angel, or the word for angel is also messenger, uh, to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the Word of God in the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and the one who hears it 
and keeps what is written in it. For the time is near. Verse 4, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from Him who is and who was and who is coming, and from the seven spirits before His throne, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the king of kings of the earth. For He loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. And has made us to be a kingdom and priests uh, to serve God and His Father. To Him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, He is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see Him. And those who pierced Him. And all peoples on the earth will mourn because of Him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is coming, the Almighty. And so as we begin looking at the, you know, the kind of this, this introduction part, is you get to see kind of, uh, again, as John is writing this, uh, there's some very important things, especially this understanding of who he describes Jesus to be. Um, in verse 1 here, it says um, the revelation, that's uh, why we call it the book of Revelation, because it's the revelation of whom? Jesus. And the word revelation means to make fully known. So in this book, part of the purpose of this book is to make Jesus Christ, now Christ is not his last name, is Jesus the Messiah, to make Jesus the Messiah fully known to the believers. This message was given to, uh, to John through a messenger who in John verse 2 is saying, and everything that I, that I saw in this vision, I am going to testify to you. It says, well, there's a certain place, and we'll get here in, in uh, probably about five, six months from now, uh, where God will tell John, do not write this. Don't write this. Let's move on. But John is saying, what I'm going to tell you here in this book is what I saw. Uh, the Word of God. The testimony of Jesus Christ. And then verse 3. Let me read it again. It says, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, the one who hears it, who keeps what is written in it, for the time is, is near. Uh, in, the, in verse 3, is that word blesses. Anybody know how that, that word can also be translated as blessed? Happy. The Beatitudes, right? Jesus says, Servant on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are, and there's a bunch of the blesses. That word blessed means happy. And so, in verse 3, what are some, there's, there's kind of two groups of people that John says, these two groups will be happy. And what are the two groups in verse 3? The ones who read it and the ones who hear it. 
The ones who read it and the ones who hear it. Interesting thing is, the ones who read it are that's singular. One of the things, sometimes you may feel like you're in English class again. Uh, but this is important. Uh, the one singular who reads this. And the reason why that is, is because in the early church, in the, in the first century church, when people gathered together, and they would gather together in a lot of times in the homes, in the up, you know, like we think of like the upper room, a big open area like this on the second floor where people would just gather and have meals and so forth. When they gathered together so many times because of just educationally, there would just be one person that would stand and be like, hey, today I am going to read Paul's letter to the Ephesians or Paul or we're, we're in Ephesus. Paul wrote us a letter. Let me read it to you. And so one person will stand and read it out loud. And that's what John is referring to here. Happy is the one who's singular who reads this out loud, which is why the NIV adds, adds that word, who reads this out loud to the church. And then it becomes plural. The ones who hear this. So if I'm the one who's standing here reading this book out loud, then then I'm going to be happy. But also the ones who are you all who are sitting in the, there and who are listening to me as I read. But then it's also the ones, and it's the same in the original, who hear it and who obey it. That's the one understanding of take the heart. Who keep it. And so there is a happiness, if you want to say. Yes, we will go through a bunch of pain and suffering. Yes, we will see the world destroyed like never before. But yet there's a sense as John is starting off here and saying, listen, as you read this and as you listen to these words and as you take them to heart and as you obey them, you will experience this happiness, this joy. So verse 4, and this is standard letter writing nowadays in our, in our letters. When we write letters... Um, we usually say, dear so-and-so, and then we sign our names at the end. First century letters, they would put their names first because you would want to know who wrote you that letter first off because a lot of times it was a scroll, right? And so if you, as soon as you open the scroll, one, you, had, you wanted to know, okay, who is this from? Because you didn't want to unscroll the whole scroll to realize, okay, who is this from? And so that's why they would always start with John. And he's writing to, to whom? The seven churches in Asia or Asia Minor. And the reason why, and you, you'll see uh, when we get to the seven churches, and the reason why they're like a loop in the circle, they're all on the same trading road that you would go around. You're starting Ephesus there, go up to uh, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira. Uh, Sardis, Philadelphia, uh, and then Laodicea. And, and that's the exact order if you turn to Revelation chapter 2. 
And you ask the question, you know, why does, why are they in this order? Well, that's the order that you would, they would come to uh, as, like a, as a person traveled that, that road. And so that's why uh, you would have that order. So there's some, some debate about, okay, well, if this book was written and, and John then gave it to a person and said, hey, send it to the seven churches, as they started in Ephesus, would they just read the the part just for Ephesus and then jump to? I mean, who knows? We're not we weren't there part of the first century, uh, but more than likely they eavesdropped on the other ones' uh, letters as, as well. Uh, but that is there is that debate uh, that goes on. But these seven churches there in Asia Minor, every one of those seven churches. When we get to the seven churches, every one of those seven churches. Does God have good things or bad things to say about them? Both. A little bit both, but a lot of it bad. Then you better shape up. And we'll get there. Uh, except for there is one church, and I forget off the top of my head right now, where the overall theme is good, being like, yes, you're doing a good job. You're, you are remaining faithful. Uh, and so forth. So. And then we come to the, the verse 5. And so after this introduction where I say, you know, blessed are, you're going to be happy when if you read this and you keep it. Uh, here's the people I'm writing to. And then he starts to describe Jesus in verse 5. And, and I want you, as we look at how John describes Jesus here, I want you to think about those early church, that early church that they're suffering crazy persecution. And how would this be an encouragement uh, to them? Verse 5. So first uh, it says this letter, grace and peace to you from who is and who was and who is coming and from uh, the seven spirits uh, before his throne. So he's talking about grace and peace to you from God, the Father, now the seven spears before his throne, or does anybody have any another translation there? Sevenfold. Seven there are some debate about what that means. The word seven in the book of Revelation is very symbolic. Uh, and we'll see, and sometimes you have to ask the question, you know, what is symbolic and what can we take literally, uh, and, and so forth, and sometimes that's hard. But the number seven in Scripture a lot of times is the number of what? Perfection. Yes. And that's kind of how people take this. Is that this is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit before His throne. We see that also in a number of places. Revelation chapter 3 verse 1. We'll see that same phrase. Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, when we get to the actual, in fact, turn to Revelation chapter 4. And this is, we get to see the very, the throne of God in heaven and everything that goes on. And, and you see uh, verse 5, Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. From the throne comes flashes of lightning, rumblings, and pearls of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit of God, which is, um, again, we take that to mean 
kind of the, the referring to the Holy Spirit, that that perfect uh, spirit of of God. Yeah. 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 And that's kind of again, that's kind of the symbolic understanding um, of that. Which is interesting when you think about this because uh, chapters 4 and then, sorry, verse 4 and verse 5 of chapter 1 is you have the Trinity there. You know, grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Holy Spirit, and then verse 5, from Jesus the Messiah, and then he describes Jesus. What's the first way he describes Jesus? As a faithful witness. How was Jesus a faithful witness when he was on this planet? He was out sin. What else? He suffered like anybody else. He suffered like anybody else. What was he witnessing to? Or or about? He was telling the people of the nation of Israel about whom? About God. To the point where and and the the disciples will come to him and and we'll look at this when we look at the um the conversation Jesus has with at the the upper room what's called the upper room discourse over the next few months is the disciples will come to him and say we want to see God and Jesus says how you you've seen him if you've seen me you've seen God the father but what happens to Jesus Ultimately, they crucify him. And it's interesting that word witness, the Greek word for witness is martyr. And so, when the, the again, you think of the, the, the Christians there in these seven churches that are facing this intense persecution, and there's and John uses these words to describe Jesus. Number one, he uses them and says he is that faithful witness, that faithful martyr, that he remained faithful as he proclaimed the word of the Lord. And then he goes on and describes the, the second one is that he was a faithful witness or a faithful martyr. The second one, the firstborn from what? From the dead. How is Jesus the firstborn of the dead? He rose from the dead. He stayed alive. And and Paul talks about this. In fact, literally, it it says the firstborn from the dead ones. Our English translations drop the word ones because of awkwardness. But you think of the dead and that Jesus was the first one that was resurrected and continues to stay be alive and how is the gospel of Jesus Christ as Paul goes on to say that's our hope we're going to be like him not be God but we're going to be like him in the sense that we will rise again and we will have resurrected bodies like him and like he did and yeah, walk through walls and 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 do all those fun things like beam me up Scotty type deals. So and then the other third thing is Jesus is that faithful witness that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is also what? The ruler over what? 
the kings of the earth. Literally, the ones, the one who rules the kingdoms of the earth. Why would that be important for the early believers that are facing intense persecution to be reminded of that? Gives them hope. Why? The rulers are terrible. They're evil. They're pagan. But yet there is one who is over over them. And who's ultimately in control. And that's... Here's another theological term that you may have heard or heard not, may have not heard. It's the sovereignty of God. That God is ruler over all. Even in our country. I mean, there's a lot of debate still that goes on. Did President Biden actually win the presidency? Who really knows? On God does. But God is sovereign. And according to Scripture, God puts in the power who He wants to put in the power. He may use the American people to do that. But God is sovereign. And when you look at the history, when you look at what's happening in this world, yes, it looks like, and, and this is one of the things that, that the book of Revelation helps us with, is it gives us this heavenly point of view to the chaos we see. It looks like this world is spinning out of control. And if you listen to, uh, if you listen to um, the, uh, the environmentalist people, I mean, we, the doomsday clock is counting down and this world is about ready to, to blow up and self-destroy and, types, and so forth. And, it, and it, that's what it feels like from our perspective. But from the heavenly perspective, who's ultimately in control? God is. He's still on the throne. He's sovereign over all. And everything is happening. Everything is happening in this world to, to, to get history is moving to that final time when Jesus will come again. And so just as we just celebrated Christmas and how you know, God is sovereign over all, the, Mary and Joseph were up in Nazareth, but the Messiah said he had to be born in Bethlehem. God's like, no big deal. I'm sovereign over all. I'm going to use a pagan king, Caesar Augustus, to get them in the right city. And that's what he did with the census. God is sovereign over all. He's the ruler. And then the second part of verse 5 there, John then goes on and describes Jesus, what He has done for us. And He says, uh, for He he what? He loves us. I mean, Jesus loves us. And there's, there's no other explanation for what God did in sending His Son if it wasn't for love. Okay, so many people think, you know, does God really love me? All we have to do is look to the cross and say, yes. So Jesus loved us. He also, what? Freed us from our sins. By what? By His blood. Again, that, that, that frees us from our sins. The understanding of He redeems us. He justifies us. What we've been talking about Sunday morning. 
He redeems. He frees us from the, 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 that slavery of sin. He justifies us. He frees us from the penalty of our sin. That legal term, he declares us as righteous by the shedding of his blood. What else? Uh, verse, um, verse 6. What does, he, what does he do to us? He makes us what? He makes us a kingdom. How does Jesus make us into a kingdom? By being disciples, what when we become followers of Jesus, we become part of what? God's kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the church, the sheep. And again, we, in our thinking, we don't like to use kings and kingdoms because it's kind of foreign to us. Uh, historically, we fought against that. Um, in this culture, I mean, that was what they knew. You had a king named Caesar who controlled everything in the kingdom, and that was the Roman Empire. And so when you start thinking about how, as believers in Jesus Christ, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we become part of this kingdom of God, which is a spiritual kingdom that will, and Dan, uh, the book of Daniel talks about this, is the stone from heaven that comes and destroys uh, the, that, that statue that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar sees, that referring to the kingdom of God, and, and as the Messiah ushering into the kingdom of God, and they think, the nation of Israel thinks, oh, this is you know, the physical kingdom that he's going to set up in Jesus over and over again. It says, no, it's the spiritual kingdom. It's in your heart that then becomes a physical kingdom at the book of Revelation. But this kingdom of God that is advancing that is starting off as that tiny seed, like a mustard seed, that then grows into this giant tree. That is that kingdom. Everywhere, every single person that knows Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that allows God to be the king of their life, is part of this kingdom of God. This worldwide kingdom that has no boundaries. And that's what... Um, Jesus has done for us. Not only that, He makes us uh, have His kingdom, but He also does what? He made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve God, Jesus' Father. The priests in the Old Testament were, what was their role? To offer sacrifices. What else were they, was the rule? They took care of the Ark of Covenant. They took camp all day. What else, what else were you saying, Sarah? The Ark and the Covenant. Yep. Altar. Yep. What else? What else did the priests do? They led the people. They taught the people. There's a reason why there's a, there's the priests were the tribe of Levi. There's a reason why the tribe of Levi didn't have when you go back to Joshua and they started dividing up the promised land, they did not have a chunk of land. They had cities kind of scattered. The idea behind that was because the Levites were the ones who were to live amongst the people to help the people know this is what God's rule and this is what God's law says. And then they were then there was the uh, the the high priest, and then there was the other priest that uh, that did the the served at the temple and or at the tabernacle and so forth. 
If someone could look up 1 Peter, book of 1 Peter chapter 2. We can all turn there, but if someone could read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The two times Peter says there in that letter, you are a royal what? Priesthood. He's writing to uh, when first in first and second Peter, he's writing to to Jewish uh, believers. It was interesting when he's talking about that because he says you were you were in a nation, but now you are a nation. He talks about that that understanding that you were scattered, and now as you become followers of Jesus, you become part of this this kingdom of God, uh, and so forth. You become this royal priesthood that as we live here on our lot, live here on earth. We are, just like the Old Testament priests, we are these priests that we are to live a life that is pleasing and honoring to God, and we are to to live amongst the people around us and point people not to ourselves, but to whom? To God. That Jesus loved us. Jesus freed us from our sins. Jesus made us this kingdom, this heavenly kingdom, this kingdom of God. He made us to be priests to God. And then the very last verse, I know we're running out of time, so I'll do this real fast. The very last verse, God says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega. First say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is coming. The And then the very last word in verse 8 is what? The Almighty. Almighty. The Omnipotent One. The All-Powerful One. And again, when you think about this introduction, and you think about the historical context these believers are facing this intense persecution, you know, why was it so important for John to remind them that God is the Almighty One? The All-Powerful One. Why is that? To give them hope. No, you can trust them. Inspiration. Inspiration. What else? Something better to come. Something better to come. No matter how bad things get, there's hope. God's still on the throne. Even when it seems like things are going bonkers and you have death and chaos all around, you know, there's still that faith and trust that God's still in control. We may, we may not understand everything. You think of the book of Job. He doesn't understand why things happen. But even when God comes to him, God doesn't explain, hey, guess what? Satan came. God doesn't say that. God responds to Job's complaints with what? With questions. Of were you there? Do you understand? And of course, Job's like, no, God, I don't understand because I'm not God. And that's why he responds at the end of God, you're God. I'm not. I don't understand why you do things or, or everything, but you just want me to trust in you. And that's, as we go through the book of Revelation, that's the key through all this. Is there is chaos. There is pain. There is suffering. There is craziness that happens through this. 
there is this this antichrist that comes and 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 leads people astray but it's this understanding that god's in control and if we continue to walk in obedience to him then in a real sense we don't have to worry we don't have to be afraid we will make it and persevere to the end God, the Almighty God, all-powerful God, He is sovereign over all, even over the pagan wickedness that we see. And sometimes we think, we think like, oh, like Adam and Eve. Oh, God, all of a sudden, God created this beautiful garden, put Adam and Eve there, and then Adam and Eve sin, and the guy's like, oh man, now I gotta go to plan B. Man, these people really screwed up uh, my plan. Sometimes we do that even with, with our in our own lives, uh, thinking, oh man, I really screwed that one up. God, uh, God, I hope I didn't spoil your plan uh, with that because of what I did. That is in a real sense, too big a view of who we are compared to God. We can't screw up God's plan. That's why Paul. That's why Peter will say that Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. God knew before He created the world that Adam and Eve were going to sin, and He already had a plan to send His Son at the right time to be crucified to pay the penalty of our sins. He knew that that as he was creating Satan, and we'll talk about Satan and all the stuff that goes along with, with that, as he created Satan, who was an angel, that, that he knew he was going to fall, and he knew he was going to make a total mess of this, but he also knew at the end of time, Satan will be thrown in the pit of fire, and the curse will be over, and sin and death will be no more. And that's the hope that these believers needed to be reminded of. And in the midst of this chaos, there is one who is on the throne, more powerful than Caesar will ever be in his life.